A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, composers, filmmakers and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Amy Silman, one of the most brilliant and original painters working today. Amy's work is steeped in the history of painting, but manages to build on traditions while also taking an irreverent and playful approach to the time-honoured qualities of the medium, colour, line, scale and shape, figure and ground. She also pushes painting into distinctive experimental territory through animated drawings and zines. Amy was born in 1955 in Detroit, Michigan and grew up in Chicago. Today she lives and works in New York. She studied Japanese at first but eventually moved to fine art at the School of Visual Arts in New York, graduating in 1979. It was a tumultuous moment for painting. Conceptual art, performance, photography and film were dominant in the city's avant-garde circles so to be a painter, especially as a woman, was an embattled position. And while Amy was involved in counterculture movements in New York at the time and contributed to to the feminist journal Heresies, she only exhibited sporadically initially. It was in the mid-90s that she began to gain significant attention, and that's regarded as the moment that her mature work began. Then, as today, her work was rooted in drawing, with an array of imagery from figures to trees or flowers, alongside passages of pure painterly play, which in each canvas kept the viewer guessing. Her language was by turns cartoonish and refined, establishing binaries that are ongoing in her work. Every value, it seems, is subject to transformation. And that's true, too, of her approach to colour, which remains one of her key preoccupations. She sees colour, she says, as an engine of ongoing change and metamorphosis, more than as a static theory. Amy's use of colour is so stirring because she's something of a scholar in the subject, taking a keen interest in the shades used by a particular painter or in the material origins of a peculiar hue. The sources for the colour in her work can be anything from paintings to iPhone apps, magazines, flowers, landscapes and movies, but she's aware of its ability to seduce and repel, to lead to disaster as well as epiphany, and her art is all the richer for walking that tightrope. In the mid-2000s, Amy's art seemed to grow even bolder, grappling more than ever with the legacies of particular artists and movements within the history of abstraction, and especially the New York School. And yet, the springboard for that development in her work was actually portraits of couples made with ink on paper. They would initially be made from life, but then Amy would recreate them from memory and gradually transform them over time into dramatic and dynamic paintings that might only hint at the source subject. One of the most compelling elements in Amy's approach is the way that she can incorporate distinctive references, languages and thinking into her composition. She developed a fascination with diagrams, for instance, which found a unique place in her lexicon of forms. The diagrams also found vivid expression in the zines that she began making while briefly living in Berlin in the late 2000s. DIY publications usually made and printed quickly. The zines are where the wit that was always implicitly present in Amy's work is unleashed. But they're also home to some of Amy's writings about art, which are among the most precise and perceptive texts I've read by a contemporary artist. Reading Amy's words alongside her paintings greatly illuminates and enriches them. 
She's also an original curator at her exhibition for the Museum of Modern Art in New York's Artist Choice series, The Shape of Shape, made clear. Noting that little had been written about the subject, despite shape being just as fundamental to vision as colour, she said, she set about selecting works from MoMA's collection that proved to be a coruscating visual essay on the subject. The show had a hugely distinctive hang, as you'll hear Amy discuss, and that's an approach she takes to her own work too, where she disrupts exhibitions with clusters of work, hanging in grids or in tightly packed lines. For a superb display at the last Venice Biennale in 2022, she hung large, gestural groups of works on paper in groups, with smaller works in lines, almost like historic friezes, above them. The Venice work sat somewhere between painting and drawing, showing again that Amy likes to occupy boundaries between forms and disciplines. The most obvious is the one between figuration and abstraction, but this is a binary that she's expressed frustration at being mentioned whenever her work is discussed. And it's this with which I began our conversation. Why are figuration and abstraction somehow inadequate in addressing her practice? I think it started when I was in art school, when I was a junior undergrad or something, and a teacher said to me, you've got to decide between figuration and abstraction. And I remember, apparently I was doing the same thing that I'm doing now. And I remember saying to him, why? And he said, because you have to. It seemed like a rule that was handed down to me at some point. And in a sense, it was one of the many rules that, you know, I spent a lot of time dismantling, you know, as you do when you get older. So I guess it's just something that was given. It was a given. You know, when we were young, I was in art school in the 70s, and apparently it was some sort of stylistic consideration that, you know, was a determination I should make that i didn't feel like I could make, but I didn't understand what my principles were around it. I just didn't like the rule. And I still don't like the rule because, I mean, everything that you, obviously, like on a philosophical level, everything that's a painting is a construction of some abstraction because it involves formal considerations that are not about representation. So where you put masses of color and how you put line and what your scale is and how your space is and every other thing that you could possibly do is all some form of construction. And it's synthetic and it's made by you and it's configured and it's never just figuration. So, you know, there's really no such thing as a representation or an abstraction. That's just a law. That's just like a a logical understanding of what you're doing when you're making an an artwork or particularly a painting in which you're rendering everything flat or in a flat medium. So it doesn't even make any sense. It's and it's not how people think. I don't think anyone really thinks when they're making a picture of a person. I don't think anyone thinks come on, come to life. You're a representation and you're about to breathe. Absolutely. Like that's just not the way it works because a painting is a construction. It's a construction site. And, you know, just like a construction site, there's two by fours and pots of stuff like 
and glue like laying all over the floor like while you're building the house. So A, that's the reason. And B, I think that on a really fundamental level, the work that I'm most interested in in my life and also the place that I like to put myself is in a space between, you know, a thing and a thing becoming or an idea and a historical object or, you know, to sort of place myself in space and time between sort of poles and polarities and then to sort of see what the process is in those things peeling apart and merging and overlapping and contradicting. I wanted to ask you, so you began making work effectively when that argument about the death of painting was raging. And I wonder to what extent that was actually an advantage, because I know that you said that, you know, painting was supposedly dead when you were there in the studio. But it seems to me that might be quite fertile ground as opposed to a kind of cul-de-sac. Oh, absolutely. Because much like the guy who told me that I had to decide, there were other guys who said, you can't paint. You can't paint anymore because we don't do that anymore. And you as a woman can't paint, especially because either they were saying a woman can't be a good painter and or they were saying you should make work in a more postmodern vein. You know, you should make photography because that's the medium that's more productive and fertile for the sort of critical stance that you would want to take. You cannot make a critical stance in this antiquated medium. So there was this kind of double no, you know, which always makes you want to make a yes, or double contradiction on both sides, because you can't do it, and you shouldn't do it, and you won't do it, and therefore it doesn't exist. So that, as an art student, also makes you want to say, hey, what's in this abandoned room you know, then I'll be a squatter. Absolutely. And and, and of course, I mean, you've written, I know, about Laura Owens and talking about how important it is that she has a language which emerges from drawing as opposed to photography. And that seems to me to be so true of you. And that, that lovely, fluid dialogue between drawing and painting is so much a fertile ground and an extraordinarily productive ground. Sometimes I love that fact that when I look at your paintings, I don't know if I could describe it as painting or drawing. It's somewhere in between the two. Again, between polarities of different kinds. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is something that I've realized lately that is kind of the key thing that always hooks me if I look at a two-dimensional thing, and that is figure-ground relations and how they contradict, and how they intersect, and how they play, and how they wrangle, you know. And so I guess those kinds of considerations, which are very formal, are also very much alive to me. And so I don't so much think in medium, what is a drawing, what is a, who cares? But what I care about is that I think I really love seeing things shifting back and forth, literally. I mean, it's a kind of primal uh, magic, you know, of looking at a picture that you don't quite know where that picture ends or what that sort of shape is on the left, where on the right it doesn't look the same and, you know, where it is in space. And so there's this question of like time and location that's really a primitive human, I'm sure it's what cave painters were looking at, you know, when they drew the outline of a 
bison, you know? I mean, I feel like there is this really interesting question in painting for me, which is about where something is. It's a kind of a mysterious and invented kind of space that is a very ancient form of magic. I suppose Neolithic people were like amazed at the magic of a line and how it seemed like it could be a buffalo. And what that means is, what is this cave wall? Maybe it's where I live, or maybe it's the forest, you know, maybe it's not there. You know, this kind of like ancient magic of what like a drawing is, is really, really the reason to be a painter. One of the things that I'm really struck by when looking at your work is that I can detect certain elements of the process that led us to where we are. But also I know that you use all sorts of devices or strategies, if you like, in the studio, like literally just turning the painting upside down and so on. So therefore, I'm interested in when you start work on a blank canvas, to what extent do you even care at that point where you're going? Is it just important to make that first mark? Yeah, I think the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, I don't know what I'm doing. I work on the floor when I start so that there is no up and down. So I don't even know what orientation I'm dealing with right then because I'm working horizontally. And I'm also working on oftentimes bigger canvases that I can't literally see. I can't even reach as far. Um, So I have to spill it or pour it or stretch myself or, you know, use like a paper towel to like get the paint to move over to the left because I can't reach that far or tip it or something like that. So I sort of start from blindness in a sense and then sort of something develops and then that thing gets in trouble and becomes complicated and difficult and then I turn it and then I get into a kind of fight with it and then at some point eventually I resolve it but it can take a really, really long time because I kind of like the idea of working with one hand behind my back in a way like to sort of make myself not know or not be good at it or not quite understand to disorient myself while I'm working is kind of a system in a sense because I'm trying to keep the part where I don't really know what's going to develop going as long as I possibly can. And is that key to the sort of awkwardness, the shabbiness, the kind of the sensation of ill-fitting parts, as you've put it? Is it key, therefore, that you have those, if you like, practical or physical limitations or tests that you even give yourself? Are the two connected, if you like? Yeah, in a kind of conceptual way, I think there are these sort of also two polarities that I try to work between where I kind of set up what I call a score. I've been doing this for a few years now that like at some point I thought, well, I've already absorbed a certain kind of abstract expressionist methodology of scraping and layering and, you know, getting rid of and building on top of. So why can't I also willfully inherit a certain kind of score making from minimalism? And so, you know, after many years of painting with like really tearing my hair out about where the ending is and what could even constitute an ending for a picture in the way that I'm describing it, I sort of thought, okay, well, what if you had some um, rules which gave you limitations through which you will know when you're done? 
simply to know when you were done. That was the only reason for the guide rules. I was told that de Kooning was asked how he knew when a painting was finished, and he said, when they take it away. <laughs> and I thought, like, okay, I'll, I'll make up a rule for when I'll take it away from myself. And so, to some extent, I incorporated a certain kind of, I don't know how else to call it, but a score. I don't think um, musicians would call it that exactly, because I think a score is a different um, proposition for a musician. But for me, it was a sort of a, a set of protocols, which I like to call a score, through which I will construct, you know, the sort of parts of the painting. And then when the thing is done, the thing is done and it's over and I have to live with that. And that can lead to some very awkward and shabby results because, you know, you might not really be resolved, so to speak. And then sometimes I would disobey the, the score and go back in and like fiddle around some more or add another layer or something. But in any case, what I'm, I guess, trying to get at is that there's also this sort of procedural polarity where I like to have a set of conditions that I'm kind of going to work within that are predetermined to a certain extent, and then work really not knowingly inside of that, which is sort of a way to trick myself to know and not know, which is something that I think in some way addresses a certain kind of poetry and art that I'm interested in. In poetry, for example, like a kind of poetry that is not necessarily grammatically correct or logically understandable, and then at the same time, which sounds really reasonable or or musical or compelling when you hear it out loud. You know what I mean? So I'm interested in this kind of sense-nonsense duality more than a kind of figuration-abstraction one. And then at the last moment, if you like, like you say, you begin with the canvas on the floor. Does the last moment have a kind of physical logic to it as well? Or can the last moment be very varied? Well, the last moment's very varied because it could come from a, a number of different directions. Like, I just finished a big painting that I worked on for six months. And I was also at the same time working on a huge painting that took not that long, like maybe three weeks. I've been making these two paintings and I had to come to a conclusion for the sort of arbitrary reason, like I really want to finish these two paintings for a show. But you never know. I mean, I might wreck it at the last minute and then it's not going to be in the show. Uh, that's definitely part of my system. But there was a painting that I was working on and I started it in August and I thought it was done and I kept convincing myself it was done and I was like, it's really great. It's done. It's from a series of paintings I did that were structured around this kind of weird spatial thing where there was a kind of central vertical column around which there was a a conflict going on sort of with figure and ground. And a friend pointed out recently, oh, these paintings are really weird and interesting because they're kind of held up by a pole and the rest of the painting is kind of falling apart. But there's this structural pole in the middle like one beam in a house and the rest of the thing is going to ruin. And I thought that was actually a really funny way of seeing it and I kind of loved it because it talked of collapse and things not working out, but still there being a kind of coherent uh, structural beam. So I was kind of working on this painting that I had been doing forever, where the right side just was a mess. And it was kind of part of that group of painting that the paintings were kind of ill-fitting and, and messed up. 
But that one in particular, I knew there was something wrong in my heart that this just wasn't good. And I mean, the guy's coming, you know, Tuesday to take the work or pick the work and it's got to look good, as good as it can. And on Monday, I was like, I can't take it. Like, no one can see this. This is terrible. I can't show it to him. I'm going at it. You know, in, in one of those late stage violent moments, you know, in the studio, I like went at it with like the scraper and like put it on the ground and started scraping this pink white mush all over it. And just I was just like it was ruined. It was ruined. And then I thought of a way to fix it. I figured out a different green pole and I painted it in. And then I thought, oh, my God, it needs one white line going around it. And it sort of completes this strange quasi head that was sort of the rest of the painting. And then it just was this magic resolution moment that kind of came together at the end. It's just that the end of the painting can be a risk into the deep, like a real dive into the wreck. And to just say like, fuck it, it's never coming back. It's got to go over the cliff. And some paintings just die a fiery death. And it's just an awful, terrible evening where I just feel grief and morose feelings. And so I think it is done through a very complicated process that's both deeply intuitive and deeply structured. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? When I was a little kid, I honestly think the most important artist in my life who allowed me to be a painter was Saul Steinberg, because Saul Steinberg drew illustrations that were printed on the cover of the New Yorker magazine, which came to our house. And I thought, are you allowed to do that as a grown-up? Like, can I make a funny drawing of a man, you know, with a question mark over his head? And so that was a big deal. And I really want to give good old Saul Steinberg a shout out because he's a fantastic artist. But when I was an art student and I was 20 and I lived in New York and I was studying art, really I fell madly in love with the Sienese painters. And the one that I love the most is Sassetta, not his Madonna and Child paintings, but his predella panels and his little narratives and the extraordinary little unfolding narratives that kind of move from left to right. And the smallness and intimacy and kind of anti-heroic anecdotal kind of way that he was working. There's extraordinary sense of space in those works, isn't there? Incredible. Well, medieval space in general is really my thing. I don't like Renaissance space. I have a joke with a friend who lives in Denmark. We hate the Renaissance, (laughs) but I, I can't see Renaissance space space. I can't understand it. I actually have this thing called lack of convergence. That's a way where it's similar to colorblindness, where you can't actually see optically things going back in space. It's a condition that my eye doctor told me about. And um, I also can't look at 3D movies. They make me really nauseous and I can't go on roller coasters. There's something about deep space that I can't do. And so I think I always loved intuitively without knowing this, you know, like I didn't know all this when I was a kid, but ever since I've been a kid, I've loved flatness. 
I love medieval painting, cartoons, and flat painting. You know, Matisse. You know, I love flat things that sort of make space. That's why I like figure drawing. That's why I cannot make the break between figuration and abstraction because I also love figure drawing because I can't really see the space, but to do classical good figure drawing, and I don't mean Renaissance style with like cast models and stuff. I mean like Cezanne, School of Paris, you know, the thing where you like at this New York studio school, they teach you how to like build space out of shade and color. And I like building space out of successive layers of flatness because I can't see that stuff. And so learning that sort of traditional way of building space in an easel painting kind of situation was for me a way of being able to understand that I can move through space since I don't really understand how to quite see that visually. That's fascinating. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? There is not one. I honestly can give some names, but I I do not turn to one person. I mean, I look at Matisse. I look at Alexei Krychanik and Olga Rozanova. I look at George O'Keefe, Paul Tech. I look at Robert Rauschenberg. I look at Prunella Clough. I look at Alma Thomas and Bill Trailer and... <laughs> Uh, Philip Guston and John Borofsky and Joan Mitchell. I, I can't, I cannot tell you that. Of course. Let, let, I'm going to pick out a couple of examples there because they're really interesting to me. Prunella Clough is really interesting. Well, Prunella is a big deal for me. I spent a lot of time really, really looking into her work. There's that lovely thing that she said about saying a small thing edgily. It's such a brilliant phrase. Yeah. But I also look at Ben Nicholson and I also look at old... Francis Bacon, you know, I love English painting and I look at a lot of it. I think it's interesting, the whole modernism and Britain thing, because I think when you're British with typical British reserve, there's a sort of sense in which one ponders whether British abstraction is a bit polite or somehow it doesn't go all the way. So when I read you or, or hear you talking about Prunella Clough so attentively and interestingly, it's sort of, ah, that's interesting. I didn't realise in a way the achievement of Prunella Clough, because I'm so immersed in the kind of problems, if you like, of British modernism. Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons I love Prunella Clough is because she functions like a poet in that each of her paintings is a kind of page which is recreated anew each time. She doesn't have a system. There are, you know, hallmarks of a Prunella Clough, but I mean, there's not a shtick you know, it's not like a visual thing that you keep doing. And so, in a sense, each painting is a page that's got a poem on it. That's the way I see Prunella. And then, equally, I also love Francis Bacon because I feel like he's making a film. So there's something about a person who's an artist, historically, who I turn to that would be important for me is always a person who makes the thing turn into a different thing just by the way they approach it. So Philip Guston makes painting turn into a different thing. And I mean, in a practical sense, Philip Guston is the most important artist for me. But I also turn to de Kooning. When I was a kid, when I was young, and I took a drawing class, 
I turned to John Borofsky, you know, as an artist, not those hammering man sculptures that a lot of people in Europe are familiar with, but his wild installations in the 70s at Paula Cooper, where there would be, you know, a garbage can and a dream painted on the wall and a ping pong table. And, a, you know, it was like this mad way that drawing turned into a form of props in a room. Or I would turn to Joan Jonas, you know, to look at how drawing becomes a performance. Or I would turn to the Russian Cubo futurists because they would make what were equivalent to zines nowadays. Or I would turn to Sassetta or the Sienese as almost like animators. I mean, so that's why I can't say an artist. I have to say that I, I always turned to all artists who, in a sense, make their work change into another thing by which process they enchant, you know, and mesmerize and kind of make you wonder, make you not be able to say what something is. I think that's at the core of the whole thing for me, even to go back to the very first question that you asked. It's about this kind of transformative alchemical magic, that's the reason that I think I even would even look at art, to not know. Absolutely. Just picking up on Bacon a bit there, and it, it made me think about what you were saying about your own process about completing paintings, because he would take those extraordinary risks and apply a kind of final mark that could absolutely risk the whole structure of the whole painting. But it also made me think about something that you wrote about Helen Frankenthaler, which I really loved, which was about how she's not being too nice to the previous layers of her painting. Yeah. And I love that because that in a way is it's avoiding preciousness, isn't it? And I love that you talked about Frankenthaler's ballerina grace in the sense that she's an athlete. <laughs> you know, yes, it's graceful, but she's a painting athlete. And that strikes me as really crucial to achieving the kind of work that you do too. I mean, Frankenthaler is more like a very profound ballerina, like if I knew ballet better, I would name the one. Maybe she's like Merce Cunningham in a weird way, but she's not making as strange moves as Merce made. I know more about modern dancers than I do about ballet. There you go. So I don't know which ballerina she is. Yeah, there's a way that that you see in modern dance, which is also something that I look at, not as deeply and as knowledgeably as I should, but it was a big thing in my development as a young artist because one of the friends I moved to New York with is a modern dancer. And so I learned about Merce Cunningham and I learned about Trisha Brown and I learned about, you know, Lucinda Childs and I learned about Yvonne Rayner and all the Judson Church people through her. Judson Church was a really important kind of site for me also as a young artist it wasn't so much Judson Church or modern dance or performance or anything particular. It was all the forms that were going on in New York in the 60s and then into the 70s. Because I arrived in the 70s and painting was dead. You know, you weren't supposed to do it. And also, like, a lot of things that were paintings were really boring and were really academic and were really kind of dull. And none of that was anything I really wanted to get involved with. But my friends were dancers performers, video makers, filmmakers, poets. Those were the people I was hanging around with, a lot of experimental filmmakers. And actually, I should say that, like, one of the people I go back to is George Kuchar, you know, who was a really radical and hilarious filmmaker. And people like that who were making these things that were almost 
so bad that they were not even art. That sort of edge, they were certainly committed to what they were doing, but you could almost not tell what on earth that thing really was, historically speaking. And so I was always thinking, how can you make art that has the logic of these kinds of productions? I'm going to ask you about contemporary artists. I'm not going to say name contemporary artists. I'm just going to suggest oh, some contemporary don't. artists to you. No, I, actually, because I wanted to explore the nature of being among peers. And there's this really interesting, lovely letter that you wrote to Maria Lasnik. And I know Maria is no longer with us, but she feels like a contemporary artist. But I wanted to ask you about her because you wrote this lovely letter, which was about the fact that she was in New York and you were walking the same streets, probably going to the same openings as her, but you never met. So tell me about Maria, because she's a kind of kindred spirit, it seems to me. Your languages are very different in all sorts of ways, but still, she feels like a kindred spirit. Absolutely. I mean, I should have named her in all those long lists that I made. (laughs) Maria made a lot of different bodies of work. For instance, those beautiful abstract paintings in the 60s when she lived in Paris that are among my very favorites of her work, because when you see the rest of her work, you understand that these kind of linear constructions that are just made out of single bars of color are also essentially kinds of torsos, which are very similar to the kinds of torsos that she's kind of constructing, even when she's painting a lion, you know, and a woman embracing. But in that work, there's this clear cut battling, going to war in a way, like really addressing what seems elegant and undoing it, what seems even plausible for a subject and undoing it, what seems recognizable as a human and undoing it, what seems okay to leave alone and let it out there, like it's embarrassing, it's it's sexually uh, revealing, and it talks of appetites and you know, devouring and intermingling in really raw, uncomfortable ways. And then she also goes to this elegance and this construction of like a kind of figure ground relation that's like almost like a prism, like where you can't really tell. I mean, there's very abstract works by her that you can read them through figure as figure, but only once you've seen how her figures can go. And then they sort of are like skeletal structures, I guess, sort of dealing with like how things lean, tip, balance, how they can even stand up. So I think her work is like a dare all the time. I feel like it would be terrible if I had this whole long list of people, all of whom are so important to me, and I didn't mention Alice Neal. Because Alice Neal's also like, for me, like was the gateway drug to liking Maria Lasnik. That's interesting. You know, because Alice Neal also left things bare and, and risked everything. Wait, the gateway drug for Alice Neal for me was Louise Bourgeois. And I don't know how she didn't come up <laughs> yet. But like all of that lineage is for me about talking about drawing as painting and talking about personal life as public life. And all three of those people, Louise... Alice and Maria, that's a triumvirate that is most important to me in art history. That's great. We just had an Alice Neal show open in London, and it's just utterly, 
astonishing unbelievable yeah what do you have around you in the studio wall do you have other artists work on your studio walls or is that an intrusion it's not an intrusion i just don't have it i mean i have a studio that's just a mess and i mean i stay there all day but like i don't decorate you know i think there's some knickknacks in over by my computer you know where there's like some stuff that you know somebody randomly sent me like I used to always put the Obama Christmas cards, which I, I don't know why I got them, but I got them <laughs> and I put them up and I, you know, put up whatever else I got. And I like thrift store paintings and I have some of those in the studio. I have some really funny ones, but I don't go out collecting them and searching for them. I have the two that came to me by this and that means. No, I have kind of nothing. I don't even really put my own drawings up in the studio because I'm really working in piles. I pin up one once in a while next to a painting as a kind of test ground or some kind of proof of something, but then I take it down. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 160 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are two non-profits in New York, the Museum at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, and the Print Centre. They join a host of other US public galleries and museums where Amy Silman has shown her work, including a drawing centre in New York, where Amy showed one of her animated drawings in the exhibition After Metamorphoses, in 2017 and ICA Boston and Aspen Art Museum, two venues for Amy's first museum survey in 2013. Download the guides to these galleries and you'll find a wealth of content about their latest programmes, from in-depth audio about the Hervé Telemac show in Aspen to a beautiful image gallery for the Drawing Centre's current exhibition by the Chinese artist Ziadi Queer Cut Utopias to the ICA's extensive content about Simone Lee's installation for the American Pavilion at the 2022 Venice Biennale, which travels to Boston in April. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I'm not sure whether it's the Met or MoMA, but I go to those two places the most. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about MoMA because you did an extraordinary show there called The Shape of Shape. I didn't see it, but I've seen reproductions of the display. And it seems to me it's so interesting. You talked about the kind of artists that you were selecting as outliers. That's such a fantastic thing to do in MoMA, which is there's literally a kind of MoMA model, which is the kind of ism model. And it seemed like a brilliant artist intervention. Tell me more about that. Well, I think it all started with Prunella, you know. So I went to London in October and I was asked to give it one of those freeze talks. I think it was 2018. And they said, you can choose a museum curator and you can talk about whatever you want. And Lynn Cook had just done a really gorgeous show that I had seen in D.C. I think it was called Outliers. I think it was called Outliers. Yeah. Yeah. And the premise, you know, her premise was like, here's a bunch of people who weren't in modern art and here's a bunch of people who were in modern art and some contemporary artists and then let's see how this canon goes if you include all these outliers and I've always loved outlier art because I grew up in Chicago and that's what we like in Chicago so I said can I bring Lynn and can we talk about people who aren't so well known 
the outlier canon. And they said, sure, that would be great. So Lynn came and we had this conversation and to prepare for it, I thought about these particular kind of people that I like and I picked Prunella as kind of my subject because I thought, here I am in London where very few people even know who she is here and forget about it in America. Like, they just don't know who she is. And English painting in general kind of is an outlier, you know, within a kind of European model. So I thought, here's the outlier of the outlier in the outlier place. It's the ultimate. And so I talked about Prunella Clough and this woman whom I know, Wendy Alsoff, who's the director of PPOW Gallery in New York, came running up the aisle after the thing to say, I don't know if you know this, but the painting that you showed on the screen is for sale down the hall at a booth, <laughs> you know, from a, an English gallery. And I was like, what? And I ran down there and there it was on the booth of Annalie Judah Gallery. And I said, I can't believe this is for sale. I just gave an hour long talk about it. This amazing painting that I had chosen, the actual painting I had chosen was there. I just sold a drawing and good old Prunella, her painting cost the same as my drawing. And I looked at my art dealer who was with me from Thomas Day. Francois was there and he said, well, we sold the drawing so you can buy it. And I bought it. You know, I didn't take it home with me on the plane. They were going to send it, but I was now the owner. And I went out for dinner with two friends and they both work at MoMA. And I said, wait a minute. I should give you this painting. I should donate it to MoMA because why should I have it? Like nobody, you know, at MoMA knows who she is. So let me do a good deed. And in that process, something developed that sort of became an invitation to make a show. So it started with Prunella. That's wonderful. And of course, there are sort of display strategies in that sort of condensed display, again, sort of subverting orthodoxy and so on. But you use it in your own work as well, though, don't you? Because I love the fact that you break up your shows with, you'll have these very dense hangs in the Venice Biennale, for instance, you, your works were hung cheek by jail, they're right next to each other. And then in your monographic shows, you have like a very sparely hung space next to a very busily hung space and so on. Yeah, well, it's not like without help, but I always hang my own shows. And I always feel like the part where you hang the show is indistinguishable from the part where you make the work. So I'm always trying to deploy the work. I'm aware of the architecture as a framing device. And I like always want to deploy something that messes up the formal ground. You know, so there's one little thing up really high or there's four little things that are down really low or I build a wall paint it blue and it doesn't go all the way to the top or the bottom. And I'm interested in trying to stage things so that they are themselves framed by the walls and that they're off kilter as well. So that as the person walks through the room, they're being hit by, you know, a certain kind of timing and a certain kind of unexpectedness that then restages that not knowing that I'm interested in the studio. And I'm also interested in trying to put animations into installations with painting and put shitty little zines in with fancy, you know, abstract painting and to mess up value as much as to mess up timing and to sort of syncopate on all levels, like what's going on. I'm interested in syncopation. But at MoMA, once we decided to do it, we had very little time because I was leaving for Europe for several months. So we had to like figure out a hanging structure right away. 
and I I said I want to sit the pieces on the ground on bleachers like they were people at a sports arena. And that's how we started with that. And then Amy Kiefer, who's the brilliant exhibition designer at MoMA that I worked with, kind of came up with this angle structure where the lowest things were at the lower angle and the higher things were at a higher angle so that you kind of felt like a sweep coming from your feet going up. And I wanted it to be on the ground because I wanted to denaturalize that hanging space that's kind of so-called quote-unquote neutral where you see a painting on a wall and it's kind of magically floating there and you don't see it how it's up or you don't see its gravity. And weight is interesting to me in general in the world. And so I wanted the weight of the object to be part of what we see so that it sits rather than suspends. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? It sounds really corny, but when I graduated from college and I was about 23 or something, I went to India and ended up through a long series of moves and different times. I lived there for the better part of a year at one point in Ahmedabad, and I was living in an art colony where they offered me a residency called Kenoria Center for the Arts. And this was in the 80s. I had come from New York learning about abstract expressionism, learning about the New York school, learning how to put paint on with a trowel and do, you know, move around with oil paint. And I had learned this canonical kind of New York school painting at school. And then I went immediately to this place where that was not the tradition. And it wasn't that I was studying the history of Indian painting so much as that I was simply unable to bring the materials that I was used to bringing. And so I kind of stripped back and I worked on this paper that I got, this beautiful handmade paper that was made near where I was living. And I worked primarily with charcoal and gouache drawing material on paper. What it had the effect of doing was kind of stripping back my practice, but also making me realize that my kind of innate aesthetic had a relationship to drawing that was very profound and to layering and erasure. I was doing all the same kinds of things that I was doing as a painter, having learned that kind of scraped down way of working, but I was doing it with pencils and, you know, little vine charcoal. And I was doing it over a long period of time because, you know, I didn't have pearl paint, you know, hanging around where you could get anything you wanted, like all the time, 24-7. It wasn't like we couldn't get regular art supplies there. That was not at all wasn't the case. But it was just that I was going to have to figure out how to ship my work back. It just was easier to work on paper and with charcoal. So I think it had a very profound effect because I was living in a place where the canon was quite different canon, was not European. And it had its roots in a certain kind of historical Indian painting that was smaller, made of gouache, narrative, beautiful, very much about a certain kind of pool of mythic historical figures and spaces that were not the ones that I had grown up with. And I think that sort of radical introduction to a certain kind of Indian painting as a formal tradition was also why I learned how to absolutely love Howard Hodgkin, you know, who was also a painter that I deeply love. 
And I think, you know, sometimes painters from the West go to the East and all of a sudden understand that the art history is very, very wide and very, very deep and not at all contained in the boundaries and the borders that they've learned at school. Oh, that's really interesting because I was expecting you to say that Japan was an important moment, but I didn't realize you'd been to India and that it was so significant. Well, I studied Japanese language before I studied art. And I I traveled to Japan when I was young. I kind of did a running away from home thing. In 1974, I went alone to Japan, and then I came back and studied Japanese writing. I mean, I, I studied Japanese literature and language, but what really compelled me was Japanese brushwork. So first of all, I had an experience with, like, calligraphic form. Then I learned about abstract expressionism, which was completely connected, And then I like, I just went on one of those trips that you go on when you graduate from college. But I had an Indian friend named Snehal Shah, who's an architect who lives in Ahmedabad. So I went to visit him. It wasn't the first time I went, but this was the time that I had the profound cultural experience because I'd already studied Asian art traditions fairly substantially in my history as a student. But then I went to visit Snehal and he said, why don't you stay here for a long time? And go down to Kenoria and show them your slides and tell them you're a serious painter and you, you would like a residency. And I did. You mentioned Howard Hodgkin back there, and I'm delighted because uh, I revere Howard Hodgkin. Oh, I revere Hodgkin. I mean, he's one of the like all-time most important painters in my life. I went once to Spain for a friend's show, and it happened that his uh, retrospective, which was, I think, at the Reina Sofia, was up then. And I happened to stumble in thinking like, oh, that guy that my art school teacher told me to look at that I don't really get why I should look at. And I bought the book and then I went home and then I got a terrible flu and I was stuck in the hotel room with like a dreadful flu. Like it felt like I was going to die. And I read the whole book cover to cover because like what else was I going to do? And I realized that he had various recognitions and revelations as an older man One, that he was gay, I think a lot of confrontations, and at a fairly advanced age. And I was like, oh my God, this whole package. And I looked at the work and I realized the sort of decorative impulse, which was so profound. And that was something that I had in me, but that I didn't really know how to process. And it did not get processed through Matisse for me. It got processed through Howard Hodgkin. And that whole thing of like, a sweep that you do at the end where you ruin the entire painting with like one big swath of like scraping, totally connected to what I'm interested in. This dance of death that you can do with a painting where you very well might ruin it and you don't care. You're going to do that. So that kind of duality between absolute death and absolute intricacy and ornament, like that sort of thing, that's also very profoundly important to me. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? I'm going to say Gertrude Stein because I think that she's the person who taught me the most about the difference between reading and hearing a poem because you can understand her work when you hear it, even if you can't when you read it. And she's the person who's so analogous to a kind of 
early 20th century painting that I dearly prize and love, Picasso, Matisse, Beckmann, all of them, all those people who she hung out with and really understood the development of Cubism as like not a formal art historical capture, but as a kind of place of space becoming a painting, becoming a space, a, a space becoming a time, a time becoming an object. All of that is in her work and this sort of nonsense sense. Also, her way of moving between fiction and nonfiction, you know, the categorical refusal that Stein is. And she's gay. She's an amazing woman. She's an outward, queer, incredible, you know, writing the autobiography of Alice P. Toklas, making her personal life be a public life, all of that. I wanted to also ask about Fred Moten. Because when you were talking earlier on about the condition of poetry in relation to painting, and you talked about poetry that wouldn't necessarily make logical sense, but somehow makes another kind of sense. It seems to me that Fred Moten is very much that. And also there's that great quote from Fred Moten about improvisation is how we make nothing out of something. And I think that's fantastic in terms of painting too, isn't it? Yeah. And Moten also was introduced to me as a writer when I was teaching at Bard College and he was a poetry teacher. And so I first met Fred when he was a poetry teacher at Bard with me before I had read In the Break or his other Black and Blur and, you know, the other books that I've now read. But I first knew him as being connected to a scene of poets that he had been published by Renee Gladman, who's a poet who has a press, and she had published Fred. She was living in the house I was living in when I was teaching. So I got involved in reading her work, which is amazing. And she had a press where she published Fred, so I met him. So I kind of met him not as the sort of celebrated, you know, intellectual genius that people know him as now, but I met him in this kind of wonderful way where he was like a poet who was just another artist who worked in experimental form. And that was somebody that, you know, I could talk to about the kind of abstract, difficult experimental poetry that I'm drawn to. So I met him that way, and then I ended up reading his work. And of course, you know, the other thing about him that's another famous quote that's or a kind of line of Fred that's really important is the right to remain opaque. And I feel like Fred occupies this space where he refuses to remain one thing and one persona. He refuses to occupy, you know, a singular slot in the world and to stick in that place. He he insists upon, you know, this kind of transmogrification that's really an important principle to me. So he moved, you know, as I knew him, he sort of all of a sudden moved from like crazy abstract poet to like PhD guy who knows about Heidegger. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I don't listen to music when I'm working because it distracts from my thinking, because when I listen to music, I tend to actually really listen to it. It's not a background thing. I find sound in general kind of interruptive. So like if I'm going to listen to stuff, I really listen to it. So I kind of pretty much work in silence. Sometimes when I'm really excited about if I make a great move and it really comes off and I nailed it, then I maybe put on like, you know, a dance song and dance around like you know i will put on lizzo or jay-z or 
you know, Missy Elliott. Music is celebration. Yeah, absolute triumph, like Empire by Jay-Z. You know, I'll put it on and, and or Lizzo, you know, I'll put it on and like dance around and feel triumphant. And that'll be like really exciting moment. Occasionally I listen to a radio. I don't have records. I don't own a record player or any kind of music. I mean, I listen to a lot of music, but I don't like have it on. I never eat with music. I can't stand it when people play music while they're eating. <laughs> I hate New York restaurants because they always play music. So, I mean, I know about music. But I sort of know about music and I sort of don't. I grew up with like a music loving family, but I listen to the radio sometimes. I listen to this radio, WFMU. If I'm going to listen to something, I listen to WFMU. Right. And largely I listen to one show, which is called This is the Modern World by DJ Trouble. I mean, that's what I listen to. But I really mostly don't listen to music when I'm working at all. Obviously, when you were a student, you were in that scene that you were going to punk clubs, right? You saw the new wave happen. It must have been tremendously exciting. And I wonder how much it fed into your own creativity or did you see it almost as a separate thing? No, no. I mean, when I was an art student, I had a partner who was in a punk band and those kinds of scenes were really important because they were options to painting at the time. You know, it was like a lot of people were like, I'm going to quit painting and either A, be a philosopher or B, join a punk band. You know, those were the kind of two options. Maybe C, become an experimental filmmaker. Those were sort of the options. So I feel like punk music had the spirit, so did experimental film exactly the same that I felt like was the logic for painting. It was not about like, let's crack open the 20th century art books and start from the high and like, we'll try to ascend the mountain. I didn't give a shit about that. That was nowhere near what I was interested in. It was entirely about like, get a camera and walk around. You know, we liked Ziga Vertov because he would like get a camera and walk around. And, you know, I liked punk video, you know, and stuff like that. So, you know, when I was going to school, you know, the bands were often populated by people who had just graduated from art school. So there was no difference. So, yeah, the sort of no wave scene in New York was mostly people who were artists first or they were poets. When I was young um, in the 70s, there were people I knew from art school who were working at the kitchen which was already there and it was, and it, you know, we would have the Kipper kids come, you know, and perform and we would have stuff like that. So there was kind of, you know, what was on the menu, you know, for like making a painting was not composed in my life of any classical form whatsoever. And the Millennium Film Workshop sort of fed into that as well, right? So that's where you encountered so Absolutely. much of that experimental film that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, Millennium was where you could learn to make films, and you could also go see films, but we went to Anthology a lot and saw, you know, Jack Smith films and saw, like, all kinds of structural and post-structural films. Stan like, Brackage and people like that, and yeah. All of that, and we saw, like, Kubelka films, stuff that came out of, like, Vienna and stuff. We saw Maya Darren films, and, you know, we saw all that stuff, and we went to hear music played by people who don't know how to use instruments. And also I was going to like dance performances. That's when I went to Judson Church stuff. We went to improv, contact improv dance performances. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I just have to show up. I mean, as much as I can, you know, when I'm not 
teaching or doing other stuff. I don't have one except show up, drink coffee, and work. I mean, that's it. You know, working means wrecking stuff. That's part of it. Taking risks, you know, sort of in the work. But other than that, that's it. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? <laughs> You've got to name something. Oh, God. I know you don't want to. I would like to live with the painting that I have seen many times at the Met that I sometimes used to go visit called St. Anthony in the Wilderness by the master of the Osservanza altarpiece. Like, I think it's really by Sassetta, essentially, but maybe there's some fuzzy ground between Sassetta and this guy, whoever, or this person, whoever that is. I mean, I'd like to live with something really small and really old. Fantastic. And lastly, what is art for? I think art is for perplexing you so that everything is maybe something else. Amy, thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me to try to answer impossible questions. <laughs> Amy Silman, Temporary Object, is at the Thomas Dane Gallery in Naples from the 26th of April. You can read her writings in the book Faux Pas, Selected Writings and Drawings, published by After Eight Books and priced €20 Euros or $24.95. Amy's website is also a wonderful resource on her work. That's amysilman.com. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Amy Silman. We'll be back at the end of March. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.